Exodus chapter 20, we're in a series through the Ten Commandments, and what we're trying to learn in this series is how should the redeemed of God live? And what I mean by redeemed, now listen, everybody look at me because I keep wanting to drill this into our theological minds. When I mention the word redeemed, here's what I mean. The bought and brought people of God. We've been purchased by God, and He has brought us out of the Egypt of our sin and set us free, but we're not a freed people. We're a free we're not a free people, we're a freed people. Meaning this that while we're freed from the bondage and the slavery of sin, we're not free to do whatever we want. For instance, here we are, seventh command, you shall not commit adultery. We're not free to commit adultery. God is not saying you have a license to do whatever you want within your marriage or before your marriage. We're a freed people to serve God and to love Him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love our neighbors ourselves. So with that in mind, we're trying to learn how should us who are freed, how should we live in a way that brings glory and honor to Jesus Christ? Well, let me start with this. You ready? And I want you to hear this phrase because I believe it with all my heart. God loves marriage. It was his idea. He's the one that created it. And he loves it. And I want you to see, maybe you've never seen this verse before. You want to see one little nuance of how God loves it. When a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free at home one year. To be happy with his wife whom he has taken. How do you like that, men? To have one year off just to learn how to love your wife. God loves marriage. So it really is beyond ridiculous that Ted Turner would say what he said. It's just unbelievably inane what he says. If you're only going to have ten rules, he says, I'm not sure whether one of them is going to be don't commit adultery. I think that says a lot more about Ted Turner than it does about God's laws. But what he sees, undoubtedly, is that God's rules, his moral law, by the way, the Ten Commandments are called the moral law of God. What he sees in the moral law is inhibition. He sees strictness. He sees what kills happiness. But the Bible calls the moral law, the law of freedom, the law of liberty. Did you know that? That the Ten Commandments are called by God the law of liberty, the law of freedom. How should the redeemed and the freed people of God live? Well, here we go. The seventh command is going to give us a big understanding of how we should live. You shall not commit adultery. I'm going to give you the letter of the law, and then we're going to move to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to see the spirit of the commandment, just like we did last week with the, the murder command. But we're going to start with the letter of the commandment, and that's in Exodus chapter 20. And I want, you to, I want you to know this. You ready? Technically, technically, the definition of adultery is this. It's any sexual relationships with anyone other than your legal marriage partner. That's technically what adultery is. We're going to see that it's a... Much, much larger word than that. You ever clicked on a hyperlink in an email and you click on it and it brings you to a massive website? Well, you click on adultery, you're going to get to a massive area 
all encompassed under sexual immorality. Joseph had a view of adultery. Remember Potiphar's wife that tried to seduce him? Remember he ran out of the room from her? He said this, it is great wickedness against sin and against God. Proverbs says this about adultery, he he who commits it lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. Friends, let's be sober. It's not uncommon at all. I've heard it. Where people who are caught in adultery tell me, hey, this was the best relationship I've ever had. Finally, I get to taste and experience what marriage was supposed to be like, and they're angry at God for taking it away. Well, Proverbs talks about this. Stolen water is sweet. This is all in the context of adultery. Food eaten in secret is delicious. But little do they know that the dead are there, that our guests are in the depths of the grave. In every single case, no exception, no matter how pleasurable it is, it is what Job calls a heinous crime, a fire that consumes. Friends, adultery in Israel was met with a death penalty. And here is God Himself laying it down in Deuteronomy 22. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. Now later in Judaism, Jewish religion, they, they made the official punishment for adultery death by strangling. But the Old Testament, in most cases, punished adulterers by stoning them. Unless you were the daughter of the priest. And if you were a daughter of the priest, and were caught in adultery, you were burned to death. If you lived in Egypt, and you were caught in adultery, women, your noses were cut off. Adultery is serious stuff in Scripture. It matters to God. Purity and marital faithfulness is important. And it's not just a sin against your spouse. David, you remember David with Bathsheba, right? When he sinned against his wife, by having an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba and then ended up murdering Uriah, her husband. This wasn't just David sinning against his wife, Bathsheba, and Uriah. His confession psalm in Psalm 51 tells us really where the focus was against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So of all the horizontal relationships that David had sinned against, and adultery is always, always a sin against people Even worse, it's a sin against God vertically. Despite the death penalty, despite how heinous this was, despite the fact that this was to the Jews in the Old Testament the worst sin imaginable in the family, despite all of that, the entire Bible is proliferated with sexual sin. And by the time that Jesus was born on this planet, the entire idea of family had become so distorted and so perverted that it was hardly, hardly a shadow of its former self. Let me give you some information. You see, Jesus was born into a world dominated by Rome, but you've got to know this, and you might not know it. Rome, even though they militarily defeated Greece, listen, Greece culturally defeated Rome. In other words, it's called Hellenization. The spread 
of Greek language and Greek culture and Greek influence. And it spread throughout the Roman Empire. Here's what family was like to the Greeks. Now, I'm not exaggerating this. These are quotes. Extramarital relationships were not only accepted, friends, they were expected in Greek culture. You heard that, right? One Greek oratorian said this, we have courtesans, which are high-class prostitutes for the sake of pleasure. We have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation. We have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and of having a faithful guardian for all of our household affairs. In Greek culture, ladies, you need to understand your place. You really weren't allowed into the social stream of Greece. The men were, and they were literally given a license for any immorality they wanted. The Romans came on the scene, and for the first 500 years of their commonwealth, they were different. There's not one recorded divorce for the first 500 years of Rome. Not one. Not until you get to 234 B.C. from a guy named Spurius Carvilius Ruga, who divorced his wife because she was childless, and he wanted a child. But by the time Jesus came on the scene, even early as 2nd century B.C., the Greek influence in Rome had brought marriage as common as divorce. In fact, there was a joke going around in the time of Jesus, and going around in Rome, and here it is. Marriage brings only two happy days, the day when the husband first clasps his wife to his breast and the day when he lays her in the tomb. That was a common joke. Do you see what Jesus is now preaching into by way of culture? Friends, do you get where family had gone? It was not anywhere near where God wanted it. God loves marriage. It had so fallen from God's desire, it was a sickening distortion. So we turn to Matthew 5, and I'm going to ask you to do that. If you don't have your Bible with you, if you please would grab one at the back of that pew, I want you to see the particular words of Christ because He's preaching and the most famous sermon of all, the Sermon on the Mount, He's on this mountain below Him so that His voice can carry our people ringed by the hundreds and hundreds all around. And He takes up the seventh command, you shall not commit adultery, and He begins to preach a sermon on it. And he begins in verse 27, this is Matthew 5, and he says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now listen, you need to understand, the rabbis, those who were there, they would have said, Amen, Jesus. We're with you. That's exactly what we've been teaching. That's a quotation from the Old Testament. That is the seventh commandment. But what the Pharisees had done to the, to the law of adultery was what legalism does today. Now look at me for a second and I'll tell you what it does. If you've come out of a legalistic church, you know this, this is what happens. You take these unobeyable laws of God. I mean, come on, how many of you have walked out of this sanctuary the last six weeks and said, finally, a commandment that I'm doing great in? I know I haven't. To the standard of God's holy expectations, none of us can attain any of these Ten Commands. So what legalism does, it says, listen, I've got to shrink 
and narrow and define this law down, down, down until I can reduce it to something that I can manage to keep. That's why in every legalistic church you've got rule after rule. Those are lines of demarcation that have shrunk God's holy expectations down to something that you can actually do. But when you shrink God's laws down to what you can manage, then you bring it from holiness down to something filled with your own self-righteousness. And this is what the Pharisees had done. They had shrunk adultery down to nothing but the literal, physical act of adultery. But God looks deeper than our behavior. Listen, if you think you're fooling God because you're not doing the bad things in your life, that your heart is going unnoticed, you don't know the power of our omniscient God who knows all of it. He looks at the thoughts and He looks at the attitudes of our hearts. So Jesus says, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. Then He's got that word that ought to send tremors down every one of us. But, but I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Friends, you need to know there were two classes of Pharisees. There was a strict class and there was a liberal class. The strict sect of Pharisees would never ever greet a woman in public. They would never even mention their wife, their sister, or their daughter in public. Never even mention them. Their morning prayer went like this, and I quote it, Blessed art thou who has made, not made me a Gentile slave or woman. That's what they prayed every morning. There was nothing worse than being a Gentile, a slave, or a woman to a, to a strict Pharisee. Social interaction with a woman was regarded by them as a source of moral danger. Here's what would happen. If they're walking down the street and there was a woman coming toward them, they would literally close their eyes. If they're walking up the steps, let's say the Temple Mount, the 15 steps that goes up to the court of Gentiles in the temple, and there before them is a woman walking up to go to the court of women, and just because her robe might come up above her ankles and they would see the flesh of her ankles, they would close their eyes. So many of these strict Pharisees would trip and fall down the stairs or run into the walls. They literally nicknamed them the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. I'm not exaggerating. What is so radical about what Jesus says, all contained in that word but, that's where he turns it on its head and says, let's look deeper into the heart. What is so radical is this, read it again, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, now underline, italicize, bold, has already committed adultery. Now listen, if Jesus had said everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent is in danger of acting it out in adultery, the Pharisees would have said, yeah, we're with you. Preach it, Jesus. That's exactly what we believe. But he didn't say that. If you're looking with lustful intent in your heart, not even having acted it out, Jesus says you've already committed adultery. See, adultery or sexual immorality takes place the moment our hearts lust, not when it's acted out. Meaning this, fixating, imagining, 
fantasizing about sex with another person other than your spouse, listen, whether you're not yet currently married or whether you are married thinking outside of your marriage, that's sexual immorality here called adultery. John MacArthur put it this way, it's not lustful looking that causes the sin in the heart, but the sin in the heart that causes lustful looking. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying it's a sin that comes from raging, ill, wrong, evil desires that are already in our hearts. The problem with immorality has always been, first and foremost, a problem with our hearts. And yet here, now listen, I'm trying to help you understand how shocking, what a moral bomb this was on the side of that mountain. The Pharisees couldn't see how desperately wicked their hearts were. Do you know that's one of the purposes of the law of God? There's a reason why we leave here often on Sunday having heard the Word of God preached to us and we feel pathetic. We feel sinful. Listen, the moral law of God had a purpose to it and one of those purposes was to drive us to the point where we give up. There's no righteousness in me. I can't attain any of them. It brings you to despair. It brings you to moral bankruptcy. I have no righteousness in my bank. And what it does is it shatters pride and it makes us flee to the cross to lay hold of the base of it once again and say, Jesus, if not for you, I have no hope. The Pharisees couldn't do that. They were filled with righteousness because if you can shrink the law down to something that you think you can keep, then you can say to yourself, I'm right before God, and the Bible calls that self-righteousness. They were filled with it. And friends, they're not unique. We struggle with this as well. The Bible holds up the perfect standard of righteousness. Friends, it's got to get to the point. It has to get to the point where all of us can do what Paul says and flee immorality and do what he says but among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed why because friends these are improper for god's people there just shouldn't be sexual immorality in the church but there is you think you're looking at somebody that's never sinned in this area i'm pretty sure i'm not looking at anybody that hasn't either And aren't you tired of the headlines of pastors falling and politicians falling and people in your neighborhood that you never, ever thought would fall in this area, all of a sudden you find out they're having an affair. Aren't you tired of hearing this? Nothing hurts worse than when you're in the church and you hear this. So the question I've been asking me all week, I'm asking you, have you managed to uphold the seventh commandment in your life. And click on the word adultery and expand it, hyperlink it to sexual immorality of every kind, and then ask that question, have you managed to uphold the seventh commandment to that level? The answer, friends, if we're honest, is that no one but Jesus has ever, ever kept this law perfectly, and He's the one who is renovating our hearts, so that we desire to keep it too. 
But we need to look a little deeper, and we're going to get pretty practical. The word Jesus uses, look in your text. The, the words that he uses are important. Do you see where he says, looks at a woman? Listen, I'm looking at a lot of ladies right now. And guys, you've looked at a woman, and girls, you've looked at a man this morning just by saying hello to people. What's he mean, looks at a woman? It's not an involuntary or incidental glance that this word means. Listen, it's intentional, it's fixated, it's continuous gazing, noticing the beauty in a person, it's not the sin, it's the second look that snares the heart, it's the continuous gazing that traps the soul. It's to look with what he says, lustful intent, meaning that word intent, looking with a goal in mind. You look in order to bring pleasure to yourself. That's what it means to look with lustful intent. And ladies, listen to me. Don't be fooled by the gender language of Jesus. Don't think that just because all men are visual pigs that Jesus is just speaking to them. Listen, your mind goes on steroids as well. Your eyes are not immune to this. Our longings and our emotions and our passions, all of us, stir when you get that touch that affectionate touch from another man that might have meant to be incidental it can do something to lurch your heart into motion we all struggle with this command neither gender is immune to breaking it but to look with lustful intent and i'm going to only give you a few examples you know what it looks like to look with lustful intent friends is to go to that part of the beach that you know is famous for the most skin. That's when you're going with the intent, oh, I'm going to enjoy the ocean. There's another intent going through your heart. It's to get on the internet, you tell your wife to look at the news, but you know you're going to eventually click your way to porn. There's an intent that's lusting inside of you. It's to watch that movie that you know is filled with sensuality. It's to read that book that lets you climb out of the dismal relationship that you're in and into some romantic world that can never compete. It's that perfect timing at work that allows you to encounter that person that you've been thinking about at the water cooler. Listen, there are hundreds of ways that we do this. Rereading that Facebook message, that text, or that email for the 30th time from that person that still gives you that, that little charge of illicit flirting that goes through your heart. You see, adultery is already occurring. And it's time that we get serious about this because there ought not to be even a hint of it in the church. And Jesus tells us what to do. Now let me give you a warning. This is radical. This is more radical than you may have ever, ever seen. If you want out of sexual immorality it's going to be a radical step you're going to have to take. I have people coming to me all the time in this church who are weeping because they're trapped into bondage in this area. Whether it's adultery, whether it's pornography, whether it's misery at home in their own marriage, whether it's getting mixed up into sex before they're married, living together, it's all through this church and we've got to take it seriously and be the holy people of God. But it's going to require a radical step on every single one of us. And here it is in verse 29. You better brace yourself. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And he says the same thing 
about your right hand that causes you to sin. After people get over their shock when I read this to them, almost inevitably, here's what they tell me. Pastor Tim, I've already done this and it didn't work. Friends, do you know what you're saying if you're saying that? Please think through this. You're telling me that the counsel of Jesus Christ was inadequate for you. That is never the case. The problem wasn't with the counsel. The problem was you weren't radical enough. You weren't obedient enough. You weren't ready to do what Jesus says. The problem is, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. You know what Jesus is doing? Listen, if some of you come in here next week with eye patches and stumps on your wrist, I'm going to be ticked because you're not listening. Where's Matthew Holland? Where is he? Matt Holland, you better stand up. Where I'm going to find you in here. Hold up your, your left hand. Your left hand. He already tried this. What are you doing? Okay, the truth is he works in a restaurant. He cut his tip of his finger off. But I couldn't resist that. I mean, that was so perfect. <laughs> Jesus uses an exaggeration to prove how radical we've got to be in this area. Now, friends, I need your attention. You've got to listen to this. I've got to listen to this. There was a guy in the early church. His name was Origen, one of the most outstanding, rock-solid, influential church fathers in the history of the Christian church. You know what happened to him? I'm going to tell you. He got so angry, so tired of sexual sin in his life that he went out before anesthesia, before surgical precision, he had himself castrated. Just years after this, the church outlawed this. Because listen, Origen, I'm sorry to tell you the problem wasn't in your loins, it's in your heart. And with or without them, your heart's still working. And we've got to take this seriously. In Jewish culture, the right eye the right ear, the right hand, the right foot. Listen, you're going to get to Jesus' words now. They represented the person's best faculties, what was most precious to them. In fact, when a father would bless his child with the rights of inheritance, he would put his right hand on the head of that child. When God holds up his believers, his children who are falling and stumbling, he holds them up with his righteous right hand. When Aaron was ordained into the priesthood, they took blood and they put it on his right ear, right thumb, and right toe. That ordained the very best of Aaron into giving the very best for God. God's saving power, friends, is always illustrated through his right, powerful hand. It's the best. Anything, Jesus is saying, anything that causes you to sin, listen, no matter how valuable it is to you, you've got to be willing to tear it out of your life and throw it away. Do you see that phrase, causes you to sin? Very interesting word. These were a trapper's words. It was the trigger of the trap that when an animal hit it, the trap would close. And Jesus is saying anything that is trapping you, any trigger that is trapping you into sexual immorality, listen, you've got to be willing to take it, tear it out of your life, even if that tearing is painful, and throw it away. Don't put it in the closet. Don't put it in a box, because you'll always go retrieve it. Throw it away and don't get it again. 
What if it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a group of friends? My eighth grade son tells me that at school, some of his friends get on the school computers to look at porn. What if it's your boyfriend that's trapping you? What if the trigger is your boyfriend or your girlfriend is locking you into sexual immorality and you're a child of God? And it shouldn't be that way. There shouldn't even be a hint of it. Yet you keep finding yourself trapped. What do you think Jesus is saying? You know what most people tell me? Well, I need to work harder at not letting that happen. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. You need to let go of that boyfriend. You need to let go of that girlfriend. You need to get right with God. What if that trigger is the line of work you're in? Because it takes you on trip after trip into private hotels. You don't have the strength to resist. And you've tried the accountability and it's not working. Well, friends, you might need to say, you know what? If Jesus says I need to tear it out, what's most precious and valuable to me, then maybe I need to tear it out and get a new job and trust Him for the, my welfare. Are you ready for that kind of a radical movement? Friends, if you're not, you're not coming out of sexual immorality. Maybe it's that computer that's in your bedroom because it offers you privacy. Why would anybody put an Internet device in a private room of their home? I don't know. But maybe you just got to rip it out of the bedroom and put it in the living room where the traffic is. Or maybe it's that newly recovered old 11th grade girlfriend or boyfriend that all of a sudden Facebooked you. Listen, you might have grown 30 years older, but that relationship still stuck in the titillating pleasure of a 17-year-old body. Unfriend. Tear it out. Most adulterous relationships never, ever start with sex. They begin with inappropriate intimacy. Friends, a married person should never flirt with anyone other than their spouse. A married woman should never, ever seek her primary emotional support in any man other than her husband. And absolutely no man should ever divulge anything of a serious personal nature to any woman other than his wife. And everyone who's caught in sexual sin, we all face the same choice. And Jesus says, you've got to tear it out, even if it's become precious in your heart, and you've got to throw it away. Friends, a heart has to be renovated. It has to be what the Puritans called mortified. It has to be put to death. But I discipline, Paul says, my body and I keep it under control so that after preaching to others, I don't get unqualified. And how do you do that? Well, friends, listen, God's not going to ever tell you, you just sit back and I'm going to do it all for you. He will not tell you that. The gospel works like this. It's a partnership. Yes, saving us is all of God, but sanctification is Philippians 2. You work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Here's what God's saying. Hey, I'm ready to get you out of this sin, and I'm ready to help you, a freed person, learn how to live free to serve me with purity, but you've got to do your part. You've got to work it out. You've got to have fear and trembling. You've got to start ripping things out of your life. And if you're not radical, if they're precious to you and you're not willing to let them go, you're stuck and I'm not bringing you out. What is that fear and trembling that moves us to make these decisions? Well, here's what Jesus says, verse 30, for it is better, twice He says this, better that you lose one of your members 
then your whole body go to hell. That's frightening. I mean, what do you do with that? I mean, he doesn't give any qualification to this. You've got to back it up and you've got to bring it back into context. In the Old Testament, the warning for adultery, friends, you already saw it was death. In the New Testament, it's worse. Jesus has once again done this to us and He does it all the time. He has set the standards of righteousness to perfection. And He's driving that audience all arrayed around that mountain and He's driving us because we're hearing it right now. He's driving us to despair of our own righteousness so that we will turn to Him. These aren't yet followers on that mountain. They're not yet believers in Him. He's driving them to despair and says, listen, if you try to do what the Pharisees are doing and shrink this law down to what you can actually manage and fill yourself with self-righteousness, you've got one future and it's hell. You can't do it. It's bigger than, than, it's bigger than just an act. It's your heart. It's sexual immorality. Flee to Me. Friends, if you're here this morning, having never, ever fled to Christ in faith, let Christ's words be a motivational warning to you. You can't defeat this sin in your, in your own power and it's going to put you on a track towards hell. Thanks be to Jesus who offers all of us forgiveness. Yet we strive in His grace to be holy. Whether you're 14, 24, or 64, whether you're a guy or a girlfriend's purity is a battle. It has got to be a hard-won victory. So how do you do it? Can I end with this? I'm going to give you four steps. Listen, if you're going to walk out and scare me to death, my own son, who's been a little angry at me lately, and I don't know what's going on. <laughs> if you're not doing step number one, you're not going to get step two, three, and four. You ready? Everything starts when the gun goes off. It's step number one. Now look at me. You've got to get this. We've got to step into the light. You understand that, right? You've got to step into the light. The power of sexual sin is strengthened through privacy. It's humiliating. Maybe the most difficult thing that you've got to tear out of your life is your own reputation for godliness. And admit that you're stumbling in this area. Listen, don't hold on to what people think of you just to prevent you for being honest, you've got to come into the light. You've got to step into it. We all struggle. We've all failed, and I am no exception, but we've got to stop living like we're the only failures in sexual immorality and slip our wrists out of the shackles of shame and take a well-prayed-through risk and tell somebody your struggles that can help you. If you don't do that one, you can just not listen to the next three because they won't help. So listen, let me ask you a question. You be honest with yourself and God. You're stumbling in this area. Man, I know so many people who are. Listen, your first step is into the light. It's 1 John 1. Come out of the darkness into the light. You've got to get out of the gloomy prison which gives you protection and humble yourself and say, I have got to get help, please lend it to me. You know what I do on my computer? I have a program called X3 Watch. It's linked to another man in our church 
and another pastor in the Lehigh Valley that's a friend of mine, their computers are linked to mine. And if I even hinted in a search towards anything provocative, sensuous, or sexual, it will fire an email off to them, and they better be calling me and say, what's up with you? Because I'm seeing stuff you should not be looking at. You know how powerful that is when you come into the light? Why would you not want to come into the light? Why would your pride be sufficient for anybody to stay gloomily dungeoned into the shackles of shame and despair in this area? Men, there's another step, though, for us. We've got to take control of our eyes. We've got to be like Job to make a covenant, a vow, a promise with your eyes. When a girl walks by, listen, learn to stop your eyes. If you're looking at pornography, I can promise you that women will sooner or later and sooner than later become objects that exist for your pleasure. And your wife, no matter how attractive and how beautiful she is, or your wife one day will never, ever, ever be able to compete with your fantasy because imagination is always more powerful than reality. Always. Years ago at a beach retreat, we're walking down the boardwalk. We have a lot of beautiful girls in our church. And I said to her, I said, one of the girls, I said, hey, stay back with me for a second. I want to show you something. Lying on both sides of the boardwalk are guys leaning up against a rail. And I said to her, listen, all I want you to do, I just want you to watch their eyes when the girls in our youth ministry walk by. And she did. She watched them. And the guys, invariably, every one of them, their eyes traveled to the chest until they walked past them and then down to the rear end. And I said to this girl in our youth group, is that what you want guys doing to your body, undressing you and violating you with their eyes? She said, no. Well, it leads us into the third step. Ladies, please practice modesty. I don't know what ladies think when they're wearing shorts and sweats with writing across their rear ends. Where do you think eyes are going? Ladies, do you really want men undressing you? Honestly? I don't want my daughter being undressed. I don't want my wife being undressed by another man's eyes. Peter says this, your beauty should not come from outward adornment. Guys, ladies, guys, you listen. Ladies, take it into effect, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading Beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Look, listen, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. Finally, let's learn to treat each other as family. Here's what Paul gives advice to Timothy with. He says this, treat younger men like brothers. Older women like mothers, younger women like sisters. And then he tacks these three words on, in all purity. You know what that means, ladies? Ladies, you who are my age and younger, you're my sisters. I'm your brother. And ladies, you who are older than me, you're my mothers. I'm your son. I don't look at my sister with impurity, and I don't look at my mother with impurity, and I can guarantee she doesn't look at me that way. But Paul says that's the way you look at people in the church family. If you're in the youth ministry, we've got a lot of beautiful girls and a lot of good-looking guys, but they are your brothers and they are your sisters. 
That's how you train your eyes and your mind to think. You look at them and you love them like a brother, a sister, a mother, and a son. The seventh commandment says you shall not commit adultery. But positively it says this. Now you listen, this is my last sentence. Here's what God's really saying. Stay faithful and pure to the end. Don't let any hint of sexual immorality be in your life. Lord, thank you for this message. Thank you, Lord. It's hard. And I stand here, God, with weakness, just like any other man, just like any other woman in this church. Lord, you have once again elevated the standard of purity so high to the perfection of God that I fall short of your glory. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you that you live in me. Thank you that what we're about to do, the communion celebrates that you have cleaned us, you've forgiven us, and you've given us the power to live in a way that is righteous. Lord, teach us to step into the light. Teach us to make a covenant with our eyes and to dress modestly and to treat one another as sisters and brothers and mothers and sons. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.